Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're reading in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, and reading through to the end of the chapter. Ephesians 2, beginning on page 1819 in your pew Bible. Let's pray. Lord God, still our hearts that we might hear your word, be changed by it, and moved to follow you once more. Amen. Therefore remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Cheryl. The passage begins with the word, therefore. And as one of my professors said, whenever you see that word, therefore, you need to ask what it is there for. It gets us to look back to pay attention to the passage that just came before it. And, and, and if you read Ephesians as a letter, you understand that what Paul has been doing since the beginning of the letter of, to the Ephesians is, is really building up to this point. This is his first real therefore in the text. He, he's trying to turn us from, from thinking about God's great plan that God has been doing, his great plan of salvation, his great plan to make all things one in Christ. And now he starts a turn 
That, that continues in the coming chapters and picks up speed at chapter 4. But, but we start to see it here where he says, this then is how you are to live. We're still hearing some of the plan, but we're also hearing a push in to how we are to live as God's people in response to God's grace. So just briefly, to, to go back a little bit, so we, we remember this context of the letter to the Ephesians. It's, it's God saying to, through Paul, God's still at work in the world. He's actively at work in the world. And not only is he actively at work in the world, he's been at work even when you didn't notice it. Even, even despite all your attempts to reach up to God, God has already been making himself known to you. And on top of that, I give thanks because God is doing such a powerful thing in you, in binding you together and in creating you to display his glory in Jesus Christ, to be the people in which his lavish love lives. Because you were dead. I mean, it's that harsh word from the start of Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your transgressions. In the way you were walking about life, you were already dead, like the walking dead. And then, God, but God, in his grace, gave you new life. He, he gave you life in Jesus Christ and released you from your sins. And, and what's more, he put your feet on a new path. A new way of walking, a new way of living. And this then, this today, is the explanation of that new way of living. It's the first thing Paul addresses in saying, what's that new life in Christ all about? What's that new way of walking around amongst each other really like? It's the whole thing that we hear today is a response to God's grace in Jesus Christ and in entering into the new life. Now I know it would take us too long to do, but part of what I wanted us to do this morning, I was thinking through, so we're, we're just going to have to visualize it. Uh, part of what helping us to enter into this text, not the slide yet, Colin, we'll get back to that, but part of entering into this text would be to ask all the men, all the boys who are over the age of 12 and up, to come and sit in the front. So just for imagine a moment, we all shuffled around and everybody who's 12 and over of the men can come and sit up front. Provided, bear with me on this, provided you're Dutch. Okay? If you're not Dutch, then, and a man over the age of 12, you could start sitting here from these pews back and we'd fill up a few of those rows. And then after that, if you are a, a woman and have children, then you can sit back here in this space. How do people feel about that right now? Let me add one more layer. We're going to erect right along here just to make sure that none of you who are not Dutch men over the age of 12 get up front, we're going to erect a, a wall that you can, you can walk around. It's not a solid wall, but, but enough of a barrier here. And we're going to put a sign on it that warns you in two different languages, in the Dutch language, as well as in English, and maybe we'll add French in there too since we're in Canada. We'll, we'll add those in and we'll say on it, do not cross 
under penalty of death. Now how do you feel? All of you who would be sitting back here, how do you feel? That was the temple arrangement. And historians tell us there were literally signs that were written in a couple different languages warning anyone who is not a Jewish man not to enter any further. That barrier right there that divided the men who belonged from everybody else is the dividing wall of hostility that this passage is talking about. It was dividing God's people from each other. There was another barrier in the sanctuary. It was a barrier that would have been at the very front, and it was called the Holy of Holies, and there was a curtain there and that curtain, only one time a year, could one male, the high priest, enter behind that curtain into God's presence. We hear one of the stories, one of the gospel stories, is that curtain was ripped in two at Christ's death, symbolizing that God's presence was no longer needed to be guarded and protected, but God's presence was being made available to all people, and people could come in. And yet, even a generation or two later, even after having that free access to God, the temple, even among God's people, was still being lived with this barrier. A division between those who belonged and those who kind of could watch from the outside. Into that context... And with that image in mind, Paul is speaking to the people and saying, this is not the way it's to be arranged anymore. There's not to be these divisions in the body of Christ anymore because what Christ has done, what his death has done, is not only torn down that that curtain dividing people from God and God's presence and, and not just the forgiveness of sins, but it is a reconciliation among people. And it says it, tore it down, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility in his own flesh. In Christ's death, this barrier got ripped apart. So it no longer applied. And Paul throughout this passage is saying, the two, those who were here and those who were back here, are suddenly one together. They're suddenly mingled together. They suddenly belong together. No longer separated no longer divided, but joined together because what God is doing is making these two one. Go back to chapter one. Chapter one has in it this. I'll be reading uh, partway through verse eight, nine, and 10. With all wisdom and understanding, he, being God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And the place where that unity of all things, God's will and God's purpose to bring unity to all things in creation, The place where that begins 
is among the people of God. To say that those divisions, those things that have separated us, ethnically, gender-wise, age-wise, all of those barriers that we have put in place to restrict access to God or to structure access to God have been torn apart. Remember, Paul is speaking to an environment where the powers and principalities are at play. Where, where there's this idea of how the world operates and we have to do things in a certain way to appease the gods and make ourselves acceptable to the gods. And the continuation of the temple structure played into that. And Paul's saying that temple structure can't play into those powers and principalities that divide people and turn them against each other and belittle some at the ex- or raise up some and exalt some at the expense of, of others and belittling others. Because the reality is all of us are sinful. All of us are broken. And all of us have access to God through the one same thing. Not gender, not ethnicity, not even wealth or poverty. All of us have access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is it alone. We are all equal, on equal ground, on equal footing, in equal space, in front of God. It's a hard word. Because this unity, this great vision of making all things one in Christ comes down to here, to our relationships with each other in this place. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was intended to reshape the way we function as community inside the body of Christ. It changes everything. No longer ethnically divided no longer divided along gender lines or age lines. None of those things pulling us apart. None of those things turning us against each other. But all of those things being united together as one people who have been saved by grace. In order that together, we might live in such a way that the good news of Jesus Christ is made known in our midst. The last three verses, four verses, 19, 20, 21, and 22 of chapter 2. Five times in there, there's the Greek word or a relation to the Greek word for oiko. Anybody know what oiko is? House. Household. It's also the word we, we get economics from. Economics is not just money in the Greek idea. Economics is the way we structure life together. It's how we live together. It's our kind of covenant agreement as a society that this is how we are going to behave and this is how we are going to relate to each other. Five times in those last four verses, it brings up the word oiko. You are not strangers. You're not para-oiko. You're not outside of the house. You've been brought into the house. You're no longer being, being foreigners. You've been brought into God's household, his family. And, and it goes on to say that God is actually building you up 
to be a new temple, uh, forming us to be the temple. No longer this structured barriers with dividing walls to separate who's who and how close you can get to God, but everyone together being built up as a new temple. And this, this is the amazing part. The temple in which God will dwell. God wants to make his home with us. I mean, the good news in this passage is not that God's off in some distance and doing some social experiment on us. It's that God wants to dwell in the middle of us. To not be, be regulated off to the front somewhere where only one of us gets to see him face to face. But God actually wants to dwell right in the middle of all of us. So all of us together become this house of God. All of us together become this place where in our relationships with one another, God is living. No longer dead, but risen. No longer segregated off and at a distance from the world, but, but tangibly present in the world. God dwelling by his spirit in the middle of us, male and female, an older person and younger child, across every ethnic line imaginable. We become the body of Christ, the dwelling place, the home, God's home on earth. I don't know about you, but that's an incredibly gracious word. That's an incredible generosity. That God doesn't say, build me a house that I can live in and stay separate from you. That God says, I need you to live together so that I can dwell with you. Because as you live together, I'm in your midst. And in fact, I'm going to make it possible for you to live together because I'm going to destroy that wall of hostility that keeps you apart. I'm going to make you one people and I'm going to live with you. That's the ultimate hope of Scripture, isn't it? I mean, when we think of Revelation 21 and 22, yes, we're excited that there's going to be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. But right in the middle of that declaration at the end of Revelation is this. God will make his dwelling with us. And we will live with him and he will live with us. And Paul's saying that's not just some future idea down the road. It's not a utopia that we're dreaming up and imagining. It's reality. Right here, right now, God wants to live with us. Hear his passion. You hear in this the, the incredible grace and generosity of God. Not that we have to get all fixed up first, but that he's doing a work in us even now that says, even where you are at, let me dwell in your midst. Let me make you one together. Let me build you into the house I desire you to be. God at work making us one. So how do we respond to this? Colin, if we could go to the slides. In another letter, Paul essentially is saying the same thing, but, but he says it more directly than using the dividing wall imagery. He, he pulls out in the letter to Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the question becomes, how do we live into this unity? How do we, how do we develop and grow this unity together? 
There are three things I'm going to give us this morning. The first is prayer for each other. As we've been doing this steadfast prayer training and, and learning these, these kind of rhythms of praying for each other, and some of us living into that uh, core value of our congregation, one of the things God's convicted me of is a need to pray for the congregation. And so over the last several weeks, I've, I've been taking one pastorate grouping at a time and saying, I'm going to pray for the leaders in this pastorate this week, the elder and deacon team, the host and intercessor, if there's one in that team, and then the members of that household. And I pray for them for a week, and then the next week I'm praying for the next, and I'm learning to pray for our congregation in a structured way, giving some sort of balance and intentionality, not just, Lord, bless our congregation and bless the people who lead it, but to pray specifically for people in our church. And I think part of learning to be one together is to be in this posture of prayer together and praying for each other. And the second thing, sharing our stories. I think one of the areas that, that we can really grow in is to learn to share our stories with each other. Now, some of that may be people who, who get up front here and, and tell a story of God's grace and God working in their lives, and, and we welcome that. For some of us, being up front is pretty intimidating. Some of us as well are, are more introverted, and we would rather tell a story one-on-one -on -one over a cup of coffee than up in front of a big group, and that's good. Let's tell those stories. Let's become a people who say, can I tell you how God's been at work in my life? Can I tell you what I've been struggling with lately and ask you to pray for me and enter into my life? Can we start sharing those stories with each other, both of need and of grace? And as we do that, begin recognizing that, hey, you know what? We're not that different from each other. It would be amazing if we had some of our, our seniors in this church who are 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s sitting down with some of our 5-year-olds and 10-year-olds and saying, let me tell you how God was faithful in my life. And it would be amazing if, if in that storytelling space we also had some of those who are in our 20s sitting down with some of those who are in our 60s saying, let me tell you how I'm experiencing our culture today and God's presence in the middle of it and doing some of that cross-generational storytelling where we build each other up in our faith and God's presence in the world with us today. Wouldn't that be amazing? I think we would start to experience the unity of the body of Christ in a way we have not yet experienced here. Storytelling. And one more. Sharing our lives I lived in Grand Rapids and I was going to seminary and actually just before that the church Henny and I were a part of was an intentionally inter-ethnic, multi-ethnic congregation. And we had, we had all sorts of, of kind of people from different backgrounds who were in leadership in the church and, and one of our pastors who would get up uh, um, from different ethnic background, he would get up front and he would say, it's not about who you sit next to on Sunday morning. It's about who you hang out with on Friday night. And Pastor Dante drove again and again into us that the rhythms of our lives and the unity of the body of Christ is not simply about what happens in the space on Sunday morning, but it gets into the fabric of the way we live our lives throughout our week.
sharing lives together and getting into each other's homes, sharing pizza together sometime at, at a pub, going out together and, and watching each other's kids play sports or, or other activities that we get involved in each other's lives. And, and quite frankly, that's hard to do on a grand scale. But it's pretty simple to do family to family or household to household. Invite a couple people over. Invite people in the church that you haven't met before or haven't spent much time with before. Spend time with each other. Come up with an outing to go bowling together or go to the park together or do something together, but to be present with each other outside of this space. As we do, we will grow in the unity of the body of Christ. We will become a dwelling, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week where God dwells by his spirit. There's a danger as well in all of this. There's a danger that, that taking these steps becomes about navel-gazing, just becomes about us. Can we be the right type of people and, and forget about everybody else? Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I'm fully convinced that, that living into this passage in the unity of the body of Christ means that we are intentionally praying for the rest of the body of Christ throughout the world. So Colin, the next set. There's one of the passages that Jesus refers to from Isaiah in, in the act of cleansing the temple. As he's clearing out the temple, he declares, my, my father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. All peoples belonging to the body of Christ. People from every tribe and language, as Revelation says, gathered together as one. And there's a, a call for us in that context. Even though all nations might not be present in this building, that we are part of all nations throughout the earth. And as part of all nations throughout the earth, that we lift up prayers on behalf of and alongside of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. A couple of years ago, I went to the worship symposium at, at Calvin College. It's a, a huge worship conference, gathers uh, anywhere from 13 to 1,600 people from around the world to come together to talk about worship, learn about worship, and worship together. It's a very powerful experience. If you've never been, I encourage you to take the time to go to it some at some point. Happens at the end of January. A few years ago, one of my classmates from seminary was there presenting on prayers for the people. And she's from Egypt, Ann Zaki. Some of you know Ann. And Ann taught me this, if you want to put it up, Colin. Ann taught me five ways to pray for Egypt. And I think it's a good idea of how to pray for the whole world. She said, raise your left hand. Everyone, raise your left hand. Index finger. Pray for our past. Pray that we, the people of Egypt, would remember that God has been active and present among us for many, many centuries. Pray that we would remember that we have a history of God's faithfulness right in our midst. Pray for our future. She said, we as a people in Egypt are praying for our present. We need people to pray for our future, that we would be able to imagine a day when God's people flourish in this space once again. Pray for those who are in power. You can remember it by the ring finger, the signet finger. Pray for those who are in power, 
that they may fear the Lord, as, as Rob prayed in his congregational prayer, that the, those in power would realize they are in power and that they would do so as a fearful act of obeying God, that they would serve the people well, not abusively and not for their own ends. Pray for the powerless, because there are many who are powerless in this space. Many who are longing to experience God's goodness and God's grace. Many who claim to know God and who call on God's name, who are being persecuted, remember them in prayer. And most of all, pray for Jesus' return. Not in a nihilistic way but in a way that says our deepest longing should not be for economic and political freedom, but our deepest longing as the people in Egypt should be that Christ returns and makes all things new. Pray for us. Remember that. Past, future, those in power, those who are powerless, and Jesus' return. Every one of us here, I think, has a left hand. We can pray this prayer. It's a way to pray for the church throughout the world. We may not know the specifics going on in any given country, but when we hear about Egypt, we can pray for Egypt. When we hear of stuff happening in Syria, we can pray for Syria. We can pray for the church in India. We can pray for the church in Toronto. We can pray for the church in Hamilton. We can pray for the church anywhere in the world with this idea. It's a way for us to enter in and pray for the unity of God's people throughout the world. We, gathered here in Hamilton, are part of God's unity and the work God's doing to make all things new, no longer divided by ethnicity, no longer divided by gender gaps, no longer divided by age or economics, or education, or any of those other dividing walls. We are becoming the house in which God dwells. And as we do, we pray that that house and the boundaries of that house may extend to the ends of the earth, and that God's kingdom may be seen in the unity of God's people, and God's presence may be experienced by the whole world because of God's people have been made one in Christ's death and resurrection. Let's pray. You are amazing. You are lavishly generous beyond our imagination. You are at work so powerfully undoing the things that have divided your creation, that have divided your people. We repent of the ways in which we continue to divide ourselves from each other, and we ask for your forgiveness. Help us, Lord. Help us not to return to those dividing walls, but to tear them down and to fight against them when they pop up in our lives and in the lives of, of our community. Help us to truly be a people in which you dwell. As you unite us, Lord, turn our prayers to your kingdom throughout the world. That we pray alongside our brothers and sisters in every country and in every place and in every circumstance that whether wealthy or poor, whether in, in places where your kingdom flourishes in freedom or flourishes and grows in stress and persecution, we pray that the unity of your body may truly shine forth, that your name may be known and that you might be seen living in us. This we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.